All right, I'm gonna grab my water real quick because I have a feeling I'm gonna get parched. These are, lyrics are for me. I'll be singing that later. All right, perfect. Yes, clear the room immediately. It would be amazing. All right. All right, so we're going to be doing a quick review on where we were. Um, like Eric mentioned, we are in the book of Joshua. We are 84 messages into the book of Joshua, and we are in Joshua number 11. There are only 24 chapters, so before the Lord comes back, I'm hoping we will wrap this bad boy up, but we will see. Um, but last week we were in Joshua chapter 11. We were in verses um, 6 through 9, and that was the second part of a message we had, which was called um, Trusting God Over Chariots. That was part two. And in that message, what we looked at was God's instructions, how he had explained to the Israelites what he expected of them, what they were to do in regards to conquering and defeating the northern kingdoms. And then when it came to the implementation of those instructions, as he started to apply them, we considered some things we noticed about the Israelites. First of all, we noticed in their response to God's instructions, first of all, that they were unified in their response. We saw that they functioned as one. They saw what God had given them to do, and they, and they did it. And the other thing we noticed was the fact that they did it immediately. Their response was not to linger. They literally, as soon as they were given what to do, they turned around and, and they did it. And we asked ourselves last week this question, how immediately do we respond when God speaks to our hearts, sometimes we might go to the Word of God and we read something, and man, God just pricks our heart, and we're like, wow, you know what? I need to do that. We might even make a note in our Bible or write down on a piece of paper. Then maybe we're praying, and God deals with our heart. Spirit, we're in a message, and God hears, we hear something, and we receive it. Man, yes. But then does it turn around and function in our lives? One of the things that we see, because it's one thing to know what to do, and it's another thing altogether to actually do it. Any of us have kids, right? We know that's... Very, very true. What we have an issue a lot of times with children is children have the ability to hear, but sometimes not to listen, right? You might go, hey, you guys got five minutes, and then it's time for dinner. And they go, okay. And then 10 minutes later, you go outside, and they're just in the middle of a game, just running. Did you hear what I said? Yeah. What did I say? Um, something about dinner, right? So there's hearing, and then there's, there's listening. And when we look in the book of James, chapter 1, verse 22, it says this. It says, be doers of the word and not hearers only. Right? And notice the next part it says, deceiving your own selves. Because there are a lot of people out there that will claim they love God. Oh, they'll tell you all day long. Man, I, oh, I love the Lord. I love the Lord. I love the Lord. And yet they do not follow his word. What did Jesus say about us and loving him? He says, John 14, 15, if ye love me, keep my commandments. Yet we won't live by His Word, but we'll claim to love Him. People say, I love the Lord, but guess what? They don't read the Bible. You can't love God and not love His Word, because this is His heart. You want to know the mind of Christ? Guess what? It's written down for you. You want to know what He believes on any subject? He wrote it down for you. And if you don't want to hear from Him, there's a problem with the, with the relationship. A one-sided relationship is not a healthy relationship. If my wife, every time she talks to me, I'm like, I got some stuff I need to say, okay? And then she starts talking, I'm like, da, 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 I don't need all that. Just, just hear me. That's a person who goes, you know what, I pray, I talk to God all the time, I talk to God all the time, I talk to God. But then God says, well, I have something to say to you. I'm like, da, 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 da. I'm not going to open that book. Because just what, this is God speaking to us. And when he speaks to us, we should respond. That's what we see with the Israelites. They immediately respond. So here we saw this unified force, these, these, uh, these Israelites listening to God's instructions, taking them to heart, and then mobilizing towards their next, their enemies. And as we saw, as a result of this, what we talked about was the fact that God's response, or they responded to God's, uh, or God responded to their, uh, to their obedience. 
So what we discussed last week was the fact that God functions many times in a conditional way. He'll tell us, this is an expectation I have for you. If you'll meet that expectation, then guess what? I'll do I'll do this. And what happened was he promised that he would deliver them into their hands, their enemies. And guess what? They did what God told them to do, and immediately their enemies were delivered into their hands. You see, God functions that way, rewarding obedience and punishing disobedience. Okay? There's a principle called sowing and reaping. It exists in the world. If you plant corn in the ground, guess what eventually you get? You're going to get a corn plant? What's it called? Stock. There you go. Corn stock. A stock's going to grow up. Or a corn plant, whichever you want to call it. But <laughs> the point is this. Whatever you sow, you're going to reap. Now, that's true in our lives when we sow good things. The Bible says, sow to the Spirit, and it says, reap life everlasting, but sow to the flesh. Reap corruption. Right? And so we're going to look at it. Later on, we're going to be talking about sin. And one of the things you need to be mindful of sin. Now, we're going to discuss the end result of sin, but also realize the fact that, look, if you sow into your life, you know, doing something little, there's going to be a little impact, but it's still going to be a negative impact from sin. But when you sow big sin into your life, I can promise you, and the Bible says, be not deceived. Know what it says? Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. You sow into your life wickedness. I can promise you. It may not be today. It may not be tomorrow. It may not be even in your lifetime. But in your family, there will come a day when corruption will lift its horrific head based upon our choices and our actions. So there's an accountability there. That's a promise from God. Then we took note of Israel's persistence in completing their mission. And it was here that we made a comparison to how determined they were into completely wiping out their enemy. They didn't get hung up on that simple, simply winning this one victory. They realized and set their sights on the larger picture. And this is a problem many Christians have. We discussed last week how a lot of times we'll get a victory in one area of our life and we'll get satisfied. Man, I finally, got, I finally conquered that. And we lose sight of what the war is. It's not about winning the battle. It's about winning the war. The war is for holiness. That's what God's calling us to be. That we're to be righteous. We're supposed to live a life that represents the Lord. And that's what this life is all about. And unfortunately, we live in in a society and a culture which is about feeding self. It's about personal fulfillment. And that's actually what God tells us to do. What we're supposed to do when it comes to personal fulfillment? Deny it. The Bible says we're supposed to deny ourselves and follow Him. Then we saw Israel's adherence to God's command. And this was displayed in the fact that the Israelites destroyed all of the chariots that they had captured. Now this is crazy because, listen, the chariots were the, the top, the cream of the crop of all military equipment. Man, this was the best. This was the, the Abrams tank of the day. And they had collected all these things. And God said, you know what? You're not to keep a single one of them. I want you to destroy every one of them. And so their flesh would have said, you know what, man, our goal is to be a a strong military force. We're supposed to take over this land. This would make it really, really help the process. And God says, no, I don't want you dependent upon anything but me. And that picture of their adherence to that, their willingness to say, you know what, we're not going to trust ourselves. We're not going to lean on anything. We're going to put our full faith in God and do what he tells us to do. That's exactly what we're supposed to do. We're not supposed to fall in love with this world. We're not supposed to place our dependence upon the world. We're supposed to say, you know what? I'm to deny myself of the world and influence and not put my trust in chariots or the world, but put my trust in in God. So we saw that beautiful adherence. And what God calls us to, again, is holiness. Notice what it says in 1 Peter 1, verses 15 and 16. This is not easy to do, but this is our call. But as he which hath called you, notice that wording, called you is holy, so be holy in all manner of conversation, not some of your conversation, all manner, every part of who you are, because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. 
And so having kept and fulfilled God's command, Joshua and the Israelites uh, now follow their pattern of not being satisfied with simply the battle of Merim. They set their sights on the war for Canaan. And this draws their focus onto the threats that still exist around them. Because listen, they have just battled against a massive coalition of soldiers that have come from literally 16 different places and they've all gathered together. And they wipe them out. But there are still wicked forces that are at work in the community right nearby. In, in fact, the one who actually organized the, the, the whole group that they just wiped out, the guy that kind of facilitated that whole bad boy, guess what? He still exists and he is in, he's just due east of them. So what's happening now, as we pick back up in chapter number 11, is Joshua and the Israelites are engaged in finishing the quest that God set them on. Remember what their quest was. It was to, for them to conquer the promised land. This, is the, this was what was given to Moses back in the, in the, in the what was that place called? Wilderness, that's it. Uh, back in the wilderness. And God directed them saying, listen, you know what? You're to go to the promised land. It's going to be a land flowing with milk and honey. Don't be satisfied here. And the struggle the Israelites had was the fact that they were trying to find satisfaction in the wilderness. This is a picture of the Christian life. People get saved. We get through the exodus. Man, we're brought out of our sin. We're set free from from Egypt. We come out of the world. God sets us free from our sin. We come by way of the blood of a lamb, by the way, the Passover lamb. And so God sets us free. And here we come out, man. We pass through the water. We get baptized through the Red Sea. And here's the picture for us as Christians. And now we move out into the, the wilderness. And he goes, okay. Now you're going to make some choices. You're saved. Hey, you're saved. But now it's about being sanctified. Now it's about honoring me. Let's see how you do. And how do they do? Oh, boy, they get caught up in their fears. They get frustrated. God provides manna for them. He lays it right on the ground. they got to humble themselves to pick it up. It's round. It's a picture of, of eternity. It's white. It's a picture of Christ. And He provides Himself for them, His food. And within just a matter of months, they say, we are so tired of this manna. Ugh. Every day, the same manna. And you know what they do? They crush it, they fry it, they make it into bagels and tacos and everything, every possible imaginable thing they can reshape it. And when they do all that work, guess what they end up with? Manna. And they're like, oh, man. And his thing is, he said, listen, and when you go to the book of Nehemiah, he'll tell you, he said, yeah, Nehemiah, and he tells you, he says, listen, he said, it's not, it, was, it was not to satisfy It was simply to sustain you. It was to keep you alive until your heart would be set on where I sent you in the beginning. That land flowing with milk and honey. You want to be satisfied, girl, boy? I got satisfaction for you. Just go that way. And when they reach the border, we'll never make it. We should go back to Egypt. Let's go back to our sin. That's the Christian of today, man. They're trying to find satisfaction in the wilderness, and God says, that's not what I have for you. I have so much more. Set your heart on that place that I've called you to, the promised land. And so this message this morning is titled, Leave Nothing Undone. Let's pray. Lord, you know my heart. Today, uh, Father, it's just to simply share what you've laid on my heart, what you've shown me in the Word of God. Lord, I've studied, I've prayed, I have... uh, I know you've spoken to me, and I'm asking you, Lord, to humbly that you would speak through me. Uh, Lord, let my, my stumbling tongue and my wandering mind be focused on what it is you'd have me to say. Lord, help me to remove the human element of this message that you might speak to our hearts. And Lord, help us to be changed. Lord, help us to be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving our own selves. 
you have a purpose for today, and I pray that you'll use it greatly in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, <clears throat> Joshua chapter 11, verses 10 through 15. It says, And Joshua at that time turned back and took Hazor and smote the king thereof with the sword, for Hazor before time was the head of all those kingdoms. And they smote all the souls that were therein with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying them. And there was not any left to breathe, and he burnt Hazor with fire. And all the cities of those kings, and all the kings of them did Joshua take and smote them with the edge of the sword, and he utterly destroyed them, and as Moses the servant of the Lord commanded. But as for the cities that stood still in their strength, Israel burned none of them, save Hazor only, that did Joshua burn. And all the spoil of those cities, and the cattle, and the children of Israel, took for a prey unto themselves, but every man they smote with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them. Neither left they any to breathe. As the Lord commanded Moses, his, his servant, so did Moses command Joshua. And so did Joshua. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord commanded Moses. Bless you. And so with their mission of conquering their promised land, clearly in view, Joshua and his men head to the next threat. You see, the only way they're going to accomplish their mission is to dogmatically root out the wicked influences in Canaan. This is the land that was given to them by way of their forefather, Abraham. That was 680-some years earlier. God promised this land to them, and God wants them now to fully own it, to fully possess this promised land. Now, recognize for them, it is a physical place. It is a, a land flowing with milk and honey, but it's a place where they would find peace with God. This is the key. It's a place where God set aside for he and them to have fellowship. That he would set up his tabernacle, his home in this land, and they would experience the love of God. This physical place, this land flowing with milk and honey. But see, for us, remember, this is a physical picture to represent to us a spiritual one. So for us, our spiritual promised land is also a place of peace with God. God. It is a place of abundance spiritually. Spiritual abundance. It's a place of fellowship with the Lord. It's a place of true holiness. So where one is physical and where one is spiritual, what's interesting is the way that they're conquered, the way that they're possessed is exactly the same way. We use the exact same tactics and strategies that they do. And what we look at is this, though one is physical, as I said, and one spiritual, the process of, 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 of taking them is the same and it's a matter of rooting out the evil that has taken up residence in a place that is intended to be holy. Do we see the picture? Right? There are things in our lives that we know should not be there. For the Israelites, theirs is a physical war. For ours, ours is a spiritual, spiritual war. 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 and 4 says this, For though we walk in the flesh, though we're in this world, and though we live in this physical body, though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. So we are not in a physical battle. We are in a spiritual one. Verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. It's talking about spiritual strongholds in our lives. We're supposed to look at this Old Testament picture, the picture book, draw from this and say, okay, I'm supposed to deal with the spiritual strongholds in my life, taking back possession of areas where evil has entrenched itself. This is key. And that's what we're going to see Joshua do this morning. So we're going to see four different things that's going to take place. First, we'll see wicked strongholds confronted. We'll see faithfulness to God's word. We'll see obedience to God rewarded. And we'll see a mission completed. And it's Joshua's willingness to do whatever it takes to accomplish what God set him to that we are to model. We look at the way his attitude. Listen, he doesn't skirt responsibility. He doesn't take a little time for himself. 
No, he is dead set on applying and doing what God called him to do, to root out evil wherever it may be. He is not willing to give in. So the first thing he does is he does this. We see wicked strongholds are confronted, verses 10 and 11. And Joshua at that time turned back and took Hazor and smote the king thereof with the sword. For Hazor before time was the head of all those kingdoms. And they smote all the souls that were therein with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying them. There was not any left to breathe, and he burnt Hazor with fire. So as soon as they're done destroying the chariots, while the smoke is still billowing up in the air, he is rallying his forces and going, Hey guys, we're not done. We have more to do. They're going to head due east to the city of Hazor. Hazor translates as castle. It was a very strong city. It is on the west bank of the Jordan River, north of the Sea of Galilee. And it was ruled by a king, a wicked king named, named Yabin. I had to write that phonetically beside it because I kept wanting to call him Jabin, but it's actually it's Yabin. So if I call him Jabin, you know what I'm talking about. Um, but Yabin. So we first saw him, you see, actually, if when you go to verse number 1 of chapter number 11, it says, And it came to pass, when Yabin, king of Hazor, had heard those things, that he sent to, Je- to we're going to just call him Jobab, king of Madan, and to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Ashaph. And so we see here that Yabin was the one who actually instigated and organized the entire force that was at Miram. So this powerful pagan force that they just defeated. Now, so I would imagine it's not a coincidence that God sets his sights or sets his sights and Joshua sets his sights on dealing with the wicked stronghold of Hazor. Now, we see he does this. You'll see two things on how he'll deal with this thing. We're going to see, first of all, he's going to first deal with its leadership, make sure that his leadership is destroyed. Verse 10. And it says, And Joshua at that time turned back and took Hazor and smote the king thereof with the sword of, for Hazor before time was the head of all those kingdoms. So to go to Hazor required them to do a little backtracking. Okay? For some Christians, boy, that would just be enough right there to drop them out. Right. Oh, you kidding me? I got to backtrack a little bit? Or, right? No, there's no complaining. We just go where we got to go, do what we got to do. But see, it's well worth it to get rid of this cowardly king. What's interesting? Why, why do I call him cowardly? Well, notice this. Normally, kings went to, went to battle with their forces. Remember when we saw the kings, the Amorite kings that they wiped out that ended up in that cave in Makedah? Why did they catch the kings? Because they were on the battlefield. They were out there. They may not have been on the front lines, but they were out there with their men. But what we find about Yabin is, guess what? Not only Yabin. No, he's back at the, at the house waiting word. He's waiting because he's got this great coalition, coalition coming in. This, I mean, because remember, they far outnumbered the Israelites. So he's just waiting to hear word that it's done. Man, I rallied all those forces, dude. Those Israelites are smoked, man. They're done. This thing is, this thing's over. So while he's waiting to hear word of their victory, we can imagine the shock that would have been on his face when the, when the men on the wall of Hazor are looking out and they go, Enemy approaching! He's expecting marching successful soldiers. And oh no, here come the Israelites. And out after wiping out all those soldiers, guess what? They didn't lose a man. They didn't bring the chariots with them. But hey, man, they're on foot. Here they come. And so we can imagine that the, the look on his face went from confusion and shock to terror. Because we know that he is massacred just like his men. The Bible says he's killed with a sword. And so what this tells us, man, that these people, these individuals, these kings of these cities, these, these leaders of these strongholds, these pagan cities, they represent the will of the individual kingdoms. They are the wickedness. Remember wicked kings? Remember the street. Wicked kings lead wicked kingdoms. Right? Wicked kings ultimately develop and lead 
wicked kingdoms. Look at the influence of this as leadership changes in our country, right? As it changes in countries all over the world. Guess what? That wicked leadership starts to infiltrate and affect the very people as well. But we see here, not only did Yabin have influence over his own kingdom, but what we saw in verses 1 through 3 was he had massive outreach. He was able to connect all of those kingdoms and bring them together, his influence. And so what happens here is, is, so in finishing the job of wiping out evil, the first step was to destroy, in destroying the stronghold, was to identify and eliminate the wicked influence that rules it, its head. Now, as a kid, I grew up on a farm. And if you found a snake, we didn't run up and cut off its tail. No. You take its head, right? You take its head. You take the thing that influences the rest of the body. That snake is no longer a threat if you can just get rid of the head. But with that head firmly in place, it is strong and it is dangerous. And guess what? Its head was Yabin. So that was the goal. That was the focus is to wipe him out, first targeting him. And if we're going to relate this to ourselves in dealing with wicked strongholds in our lives, now, wicked stronghold is something that's a sin that's in our life. Something that for whatever reason, we just cannot conquer it. It is entrenched in us. And for whatever reason, no matter how hard we try with our will, with our desire, we just can't seem to deal with it. And what we are to do is we're to deal with the source. What leads it? What guides it? Now, whether it's a hurtful experience from our past, a lot of people have been hurt, man. Some of us, I hear some of y'all's stories. Man, they break your heart of what you've been through, where you came. It could be a wicked person, an influence from your past, someone who was destructive. But understand, the strongholds of sin, they have origins in pain. They have origins in pain. They may be this, a stronghold of sin like this, maybe like loss, perhaps betrayal, rage, a sense of unworthiness, covetousness, or lust. All of these strongholds, guess what they do? They manifest themselves into wicked behaviors. Things like bitterness, discontentment, wrath, depression, physical addiction. So there's a root there. There's something that forces and causes that behavior to be so well entrenched. And what we're seeing is we're supposed to go to the core. We're supposed to go to the, to the source. People do not fall into sinful behaviors like these unless they're trying to escape something or someone. And many times that person is themselves. You talked about people that struggle with addiction. And what are they trying to do? They're trying to hide from their pain. Hide from their pain. But addictive behaviors, man, they're dangerous for all of us. And they can show up in different ways. But what we have to realize is in order to destroy a wicked stronghold's power over us, we must remove its head. That is absolutely key. Because in doing so, we rob its influence. We rob it of its influence and its power, and its power to rally against us. We take away its, its very focus. This is done, listen, not through trusting in ourselves. It's not through our willpower. It's not through our ability to say, you know what, well, I'm going to focus. I'm going to do this. I'm gonna... No, it's through trusting the Lord in the midst of the circumstance and realizing the fact that God is working in your circumstance. And sometimes the very things that we're trying to hide from, the things that we're trying to, to try to, to, that we hate in our life, God's saying, listen, if you'll embrace it and let me work through it, I'll make you better. I'll make you stronger. Don't hide. Deal with it. Address it. And let that thing that used to have power of you, let it be killed. Because you realize that, you know what? As opposed to hating that, one day I might love it if I could just realize how God used it to shape me. Notice what he says here in Romans chapter 8, verses 26 through 28. Likewise, the Spirit. Sometimes, you know what? Sometimes we're going through something and we just don't know what to do. 
we're lost, right? Listen to what he says. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we, should pr- what we should pray for as we ought. We go to God and we don't even know what to ask for. We're so overwhelmed in our moment. But the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us. Man, He will speak on your behalf with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he make intercession for the saints. Look at this. According to the will of God. He's trying to accomplish His will in your life through your circumstance. And when you don't even understand it, sometimes God says, just trust me. Just trust me. I'm working. I'm working. I'm working. Verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good for them that love God to them who are called according to His purpose. He says, all things... So the things that we hate and the things that we love, God can use them all for His glory. Putting our faith in what God would have us to do in His will for us and relinquishing our own. That's a hard thing to do. For you see, our carnal, fleshly will, you know what it does? It directs us to sinful works. When we give in to our flesh, it appears in our lives as sin. And so when it comes to confronting the wicked strongholds, first, the leadership is to be destroyed. Then secondly, we see this. Its strength is to be decimated. Verse 11. And they smote all the souls that were therein with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying them. There was not any left to breathe, and he burnt Hazor with fire. And so after Yabin was killed, what we see is the focus is now set over to utterly and completely decimating the population. He destroys the city, and then when he's done destroying the individual population, he literally completely destroys the city by burning it to the ground. They took nothing from this place of Hazor. Now the rest of the text tells us, that Hazor, literally, uh, was the only city that was burned. None of the others were burned. This was the only one. It was singled out. Verse 10 told us this. It said, Hazor before time was the head of all those kingdoms. So Hazor had tremendous influence. It was like a city on a hill in the pagan culture. Look at that example. Hazor. Having, been a, having had dominion over all these northern kingdoms, stood in a unique, unique position of influence and power over the entire region. And so it appears that what God's doing here is making an example of this revered, this revered pagan city, and he judges it by fire. Interestingly enough. And what you find is God brings his ultimate judgment is always by fire. Always. That's the end result. And so what they see is this, if that's God's ultimate judgment, all those who defy God throughout history, guess what they'll face? They're going to face fire. They'll stand before God, and then they will be placed into a lake of fire. And what's interesting is archaeologists from Hebrew University that discovered the location of Hazor, you know how they knew it was Hazor? Because of all the ash. It was burned to the ground. And what's so interesting is archaeologists continue to find location after location after location after location that the Bible says are there. No one has any clue. They're going through a field, a sandy desert area, and they start to uncover stuff. And they go, well, would you look at that? Huh? 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 People, place. It's amazing. And the more they dig, the more they verify Scripture to to be saying exactly what history also says. And so what we see here is Joshua utterly destroyed its influence. Utterly destroyed its influence. It has been destroyed by fire, thus erasing it from history. And its earthly strength was proven to be no match to God's. And what's so beautiful about that is as we decimate the strongholds 
in our lives as we do the very same thing through surrendering ourselves, through surrendering ourselves and our will to God's judgment. We erase their influence over us. We want to destroy these strongholds, but not only for our sake, but for those that are around us, for those that watch our testimony, who are judging who God is through looking at our life. The only Bible most people will read will be the the one that's your life. They're judging Him every day based upon you. What does our life speak to the world? Does it speak of holiness? Or does it just look like a variation of the world? That's the point, is destroying the stronghold so it does not have power because guess what? Not only is it affecting you, but it's affecting those that are around you. And when God delivers the victory over those strongholds, you know what we need to do? Leave their ruins in the dust. There are no glory days of sin. Can I tell you that? Let me say that one more time. There are no glory days of sin. You'll meet people that'll tell you who they used to be. And next thing you know, they're telling you on these adventures of things they did and things that... Listen, your your flesh wants to glory in its sin. We do not validate its sin. We recognize it. You know what our job is to do? Our job is to be holy. To recognize those things for what they are. They're wicked. They're destructive. They're not something we celebrate. They're not something I tell stories of. Except for the fact that I was delivered from the power of the Satan and destruction that was in my life. God gets the glory for bringing us out of it. We don't focus on it. Does that make sense? And it's a dangerous place to be because sometimes people won't start telling you stories about their past. And next thing you know, I'm like, look, you know what? I don't need to know any of this stuff. This ain't going to help me. How did God work? What did he do to bring you out of it? Philippians 3, verses 13 and 14, God says this through Paul. He says, brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. What's before him? I press towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I'm not going to focus on where I came from. I'm going to focus on where it is I'm going, man, because this can change people's lives. Man, I affected a lot of people for for, for the devil back then. I hurt people back then, but you know what? From here, this day forward, all I can change is today. And from today forward, man, I'm going to live for the glory of God. The next, we considered how the Israelites continue their battle against evil and its influence in our second point, faithful to God's word. Verse 12 says this, And all the cities of those kings and all the kings of them did Joshua take, and they smote them with the edge of the sword, and he utterly destroyed them, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded. And so having dealt first with the biggest threat, which was Hazor, what we see is their attention shifts over to the cities that are surrounding them, these additional, or we might call them lesser strongholds. Okay. So though they are lesser strongholds, nonetheless, they are still strongholds. So they need to be addressed. So instead of taking them lightly, instead of seeing them and going, ah, that's not a big deal, Joshua confronts them with the exact same level of, of intensity that he does the others. Verse 12 tells us this, smote them with the edge of the sword and utterly destroyed them. You see with God, listen, understand, sin is sin. Rebellion is rebellion. We're the ones that judge sin. We're the ones that rate sin. Oh, he's a murderer, but he's a liar. Guess what? Can I tell you, the little white liar and the axe murderer are going to be in the same hell. They're going to burn in the same lake of fire. In the end, sin is sin. Sin separates us from God. Now, I'm not telling you there aren't higher consequences on earth. Oh my goodness, there's sexual sin. There's all kinds of things that you can do. Boy, there's some horrific consequences. But can I tell you, the fire's just as hot in the lake of fire for the one who told a little white lie and denied Christ as the one who killed 100 people. It does not matter. Recognize the fact that, listen, ultimately, the responsibility for us is to be holy. Listen, it's not to be mostly holy. 
It's to be holy. And again, this is not something you can attain on your own. You will not through your willpower or your own personal desire or your own, I'm going I'm to do this, I'm going to do this. This is not a works thing. This is a surrender thing. That's the only way to get there. We don't surrender. We don't win because of our will. We, sur- we win because we get surrendered to God's will for us. And the more He works through us, the more we can defeat the strongholds. Because recognize, He's the one that brings victory. So many times, we, want, we think victory is by the way of our fight. Look, in the world, you might think that that's, that's the perspective in the world. You win a victory because you fight. But you've got to realize with God, we win victories because we surrender. We surrender to the power of God and let Him fight for us. How many times do we see the battle is the Lord's, the battle is the Lord's, the battle is the Lord's? You listen, you're just going to get in the way. You're going to slow things down. You get in the back and let me fight this one. Okay, Lord, I'm going to just trust you. I'm going to put my head down and just pray while you do the work that I can't do. And man, oh man, fighting your battles from your knees is the best place you can possibly be. And you'll see God do miraculous things. Uh, And understand, this means that no stronghold goes undefeated. Whether it's a pagan outpost with three men and two little buildings, or if it's a massive city with thousands of pagans in it, every one of them, they're supposed to be eliminated from the promised land. So we don't pick and choose. We don't decide this is little and this is big. We deal with them all because our focus is holiness. You cannot be 90% pure. Guess what? You're either 100% pure or you're not. You can't be righteous and unrighteous. Listen, our goal is to be pure. Our goal is to be righteous. We're not righteous because of ourselves. We're righteous because of the love of Christ. Because the righteousness of God is applied to our lives. And a Christian means you look like Him. The Bible talks about the image of God. The image of God. The image of God. And we look into the perfect law of liberty. The mirror that shows us ourselves. It reveals our sin. And the more we surrender to God and the more we let go of ourselves, the more He starts to show up. How beautiful. That if people went saw us, they didn't even see us anymore. They saw Christ. That's to be Christian. Christian means to be Christ-like. The image. The image of God. 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16, we already read it. But as he which hath called you is holy. Here's the command. So be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Conversation is your life. What does it speak? Because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. He's reminding us, this is what you're to do, and this, guess what? It's based upon what I told you before. Be holy, for I am holy. And as, a re- and as a result of the Israelites' faithfulness to God's word and eliminating the strongholds, next we'll see obedience to God rewarded, verses 13 and 14. Let me get a sip of water. I'm getting too excited. Are you guys okay? Yeah. Y'all are with me? All right. I hate to leave y'all behind, and I'm just the only one inside. Like, woo! <laughs> I get in the end of it, I'm like, yes! And y'all are like, ah. okay. All right. Obedience to God rewarded. 13 and 14. But as for the cities that stood still in their strength, Israel burned none of them, save Hazor only, and did Joshua burn. And all the spoil of these cities and the cattle the children of Israel took for a prey unto themselves. But every man they smote with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them. Neither left they any to breathe. And so here the Israelites are able to plunder the other cities. Okay? God has provided for them. Now this would have been necessary because recognize these men have been on the move. They're only able to carry the provisions that they would have had on their bodies. So as they're literally fighting from battle to battle to battle, they're doing these long marches, 50, mi- excuse me, 50 miles sometimes, there are no supplies. So what's happening is now God's provided them fresh water, fresh food, and fresh supplies, providing for them as they need them. Okay, This is an important thing to understand. 
He's not just stockpiling in certain areas. As they go, the provisions are there. God's made sure that they're already sitting there waiting on them as they do His will. Because if they didn't destroy these cities and conquer the cities, they wouldn't have availability. So by doing God's will, God is making provision for them. So what we see is God rewards faithfulness. We've talked about this time and time and time and time again. It's a simple concept, but God rewards faithfulness. Now, if we take that principle, we go, okay. Because what happens a lot of times we heard that, we hear that phrase, and we go, yes, God rewards faithfulness. But do we really hear it? Do we live our lives like we believe it to be true? Are we willing to say, you know what, God, I'm going to be faithful to you, and I'm not going to worry about tomorrow. I'm not going to worry about this. I'm not going to worry about that. Listen to what Jesus says. As he explains it to us, when we go to Matthew 6, he explains it. He says, I'm going to read you uh, 13 verses. And in these verses, I want you to hear, this is Christ talking to us. Listen, this is what he says. But lay up for yourselves treasure, and this is Matthew 6, verses 20 through 23. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Okay, set your focus there. Where It says, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. Verse 21, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Okay? Very important. Where your treasure is, wherever you set your, you, whatever you consider to be valuable, that's where your heart is. If you are falling in love with this world, then guess what? Your heart is on this world. If you set your heart on the things of God, then guess what? That's where your heart is. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, listen, if your focus is only on the, on the, on the good things of God, on righteousness, thy whole body shall be full of light. Listen, man, if your focus is on on living godliness, guess what? Your whole life is going to reflect godliness. But if thine eye be evil, if your focus is on the wrong thing, if you're focused on, 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 on fulfilling fleshly desires, the whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? Do you not realize the influence that your life has, that people see it? No man can serve two masters. Listen, he describes this. Look, and you can't live, look, I'm going to live in the world and live with God. No! you got to choose. Pick and choose. No man can serve two masters. Notice the wording. This is Jesus' no man. Not some man. I hate to break it to you. You're not the one. <laughs> Everybody's like, well, no, I think maybe I could. And God's like, no. No man can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. He's saying you cannot serve God and serve the world simultaneously. Notice this. Verse number 25. Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life. That's a hard one. Take no thought for your life. What ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body. What ye shall put on, is not the life more than meat and the body more than raiment? Is it not more than the physical existence that you have on this world? Is it not more than that? Is there not something that's greater in you, which is a spiritual walk with God, your opportunity to change eternity? Recognize the only thing you can hold in your hand that's eternal on this planet is this book. The only thing you can impact on this world that's eternal is the souls of men. Yet we spend our time and energy chasing stuff that will all burn up with a fervent heat. He's saying, listen, where is your treasure? Where is your treasure? Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life, and you shall, what you shall eat, or what you shall drink, nor what your, uh, yet for your body, or you shall put on, is not the life more than meat, and the body than, than raiment. Behold, the fowls of the air, for they sow not. Listen, they're not preparing for themselves, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns. Listen, they're not planning for tomorrow, they're living in the moment. Yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are you not much better than they? Which of you by taking thought can add one cubit unto his stature? 
I know my wife has probably spent some time and energy doing that, but I don't think it's worked. <laughs> she's, she's still little, but she's perfect in that slight little size. She's awesome. Um, and why take ye thought for raiment? Listen to this. Consider the lilies of the field, how they, how they grow, they toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Listen, because of that truth, Wherefore, he says, wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Listen to this. Therefore, because of this truth, therefore, take no thought, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? Verse 32. For all, he says, after all these things do the Gentiles seek. He says, listen, the lost world's doing the exact same thing that you're doing. You look just like they do. Yet you have a Father that loves you, that's going to provide for you. Amen. For your heavenly Father, He knoweth that you have need of all these things. There's nothing in your life that He doesn't know is coming. There's nothing that you need that He doesn't know you need it. Amen. But remember, He's a conditional God. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. You do that. Put me in priority one in your life. Make it all about me. And the byproduct of you doing that, and all these things shall be added unto you. All these things, food, water, raiment, the cares, the needs that you have in this life. Yet most of us live our lives constantly in fear of tomorrow. And we put our faith in ourselves. And we go, i got to work harder. i got to do this. i got to do that. No. Be faithful to God. The Bible says, do all that you do heartily as unto the Lord and not to men. If you've got a job, man, do it for the glory of God. Do it for God's glory and watch Him provide for you. It's amazing how God... And you know what? And then adversity comes. Instead of freaking out and going, you know what? I, I, God forgot me. I knew He would. <laughs> no. Lord, you know what? I'm supposed to learn something in the moment of this. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to trust you. Amen. I'm going to hold on. I don't understand. But you know what? Even in this moment, I don't know how to pray. But you know what? You'll even speak on my behalf. You'll pray on my behalf. You know what Jesus is saying through all of this? God rewards faithfulness. If we boil it down, that's what he's saying. God rewards faithfulness. Will we trust him for our provisions like Joshua? Or will we waste our time worrying about tomorrow? We've seen Joshua and the Israelites confront wicked strongholds, faithfully follow God's word, and trust God to provide for them. Next we see our last point, the portion, this portion of the northern kingdom is going to be completely conquered. This section is going to be done as we see a mission completed. Verse 15, as the Lord commanded Moses, his servant, so did Moses command Joshua. And so did Joshua. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord commanded Moses. Notice the series that takes place in this verse. As the Lord commanded Moses, his servant. So Moses receives from God. So did Moses command Joshua. So Joshua then takes what he received from God and he gives it to Joshua, or Moses gives it to Joshua. And then what happens? Joshua turns around, and so did Joshua. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord commanded Moses to do. So Moses heard from God, and God told and Moses taught Joshua, and Joshua turned around and said, you know what? I'll get it done, boss. Don't worry. I'm on the job. God gave Moses a mission, a commission, to not only bring the Israelites into Canaan, but to conquer it for the glory of God. And when Moses was unable to complete it, the man that he had trained, the man that he had invested in, his disciple, Joshua. You know what he did? He took the mantle of Moses upon himself, and he made sure that he would faithfully do the will of God. Notice verse 15, and so did Joshua. So did Joshua. He left nothing undone. 
done of all that the Lord commanded Moses. Do you realize that this is the reason why you and I are saved today? It's because of the same principle that's being taught here. It's because Jesus Christ established disciples, men that he invested in, and he showed them the gospel. They knew who they were and what their mission was. He sent them on a course. And because they did like Moses and they shared with other people, down the line, you and I today stand secure in our salvation, secure in the Lord. They discipled others who would continue and complete the mission of reaching the lost world. The gospel going out to people. People being baptized and added to the church. Folks being discipled and trained to do the same thing. You see, the commission the Lord gave us, that He gave the church, we go to Matthew, you know, chapter 28, and we go to verses 19 and 20. At the ascension of Christ, what does He say? Go ye therefore. Okay? This is your job. This is what I'm sending you to do. This is it. I'm getting ready to leave. This is the thing I'm leaving you to do. Go ye therefore. Teach all nations. Reveal the gospel to people. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Ghost. We'll do that today. Next one. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Discipleship. We see salvation, reaching people with the gospel, baptism, and then we see discipleship. Biblically, recognize that this is the work of the Lord. Okay? This is the work of the Lord. We hear that terminology. Because, oh, I do the work of the Lord. We do, oh, I'll be giving sandwiches to people. Uh, we built a bathroom in, uh, in Guyana. Okay, great. Listen, there's all kinds of things you can do for the Lord, but that doesn't mean that they are the work of the Lord. We can define the work of the Lord because Jesus Christ, when He's in the Garden of Gethsemane, before His crucifixion, He's talking to the Father, and as He does, He falls down and He talks to the Lord, and He says this, I have glorified Thee on the earth. Notice the next words, John 17, 4. I have finished the work which thou hast gave, thou gavest me to do. Now, there are a lot of people that will teach you that that's the cross. But that makes no sense because this is about 12 to 14 hours before he dies. He says it is finished on the cross when he fulfills the very last prophecy of taking that vinegar. And he finishes the last prophecy. Oh, yeah, it's done. That was. But the work of the Lord is completed the day before. You know what the work of the Lord is? It's establishing his disciples. He tells us in John 17, he explains, he says, listen, I've done it. I've prepared these men. They're ready to go. They're ready to move forward. These men are in place. He's not referencing the cross. His work was to establish disciples who would carry on the mission of reaching the world with the gospel. That's the job. And did you know that's the work that God's given us to do as well? Amen. The very same thing. Not just addressing the physical needs of people in the world. What happens is these organizations that started off led for the glory of God, the Salvation Army. Do you hear the title of that place? Salvation Army. But I can promise you, salvation is not the main goal. Now it's about providing for people. It's about meeting the physical needs. Because guess what? That makes the flesh feel good. I don't have to confront someone's spiritual condition to give them a sandwich and a slap on the back and say, Hey man, God bless you, brother. God bless you. But boy, if we're going to get into the thick of it, we're going to get into the muck and the mire. We're going to get into what's, what they've been dealing with. That's a, that's a tough job. Sometimes you talk to people, man, it's, it's, it's hard. It hurts you emotionally sometimes. Maybe they reject you, but the Bible says in the book of Jude that we're supposed to reach into the fire, saving some. If you reach into a fire, you're going to get burned. Some people's lives are wicked. They're messed up, man. But you know what they need? They need the love of God. They need someone willing to risk themselves, to deny themselves, and to go an extra mile to do something like that. 
And what we see here is the fact that there's so many organizations that have become humanitarian organizations that were at one point in time, the Red Cross, do you realize what the Red Cross even represents? It was Christian. It was Christ. The Red Cross is a completely uh, secular system now. It has no more gospel in it. And what happens is we lose sight of the gospel root. What's so awesome about what we do in Malawi? Because everything in Malawi is a gospel-driven. Every single thing has a focus which is reaching their soul. Because you can provide for somebody physically. And you might make life easier on earth. But if when they take their last breath, they open it in hell, what's the point? What's the point? All we're doing is prolonging the inevitable. But what if? What if we love them enough to tell them the truth? To share the gospel? To address their desperate need? of salvation. As time grows short, are we doing what God's called us to do? Is it our heart's focus? Is our treasure is our treasure found in the people of the earth? Because you know what the treasure is to God? Souls. Souls. He's like, is that your treasure? It's supposed to be. When I left, I told you that's the only thing I wanted you to do. Reach them. Reach the lost. Reach the lost with the love of Christ while investing in others who can continue the work. Listen, we, we, when we finished our course, have we invested in someone else who could continue what we were doing? If we're doing what we're supposed to be doing, trying to reach the world, recognize the fact that, listen, there are millions of Christians on the earth today because of faithful people throughout history who took the commission that God gave them seriously. Not only did they live it, but they taught it to others, and they taught others who taught others. It's amazing. And we're here today because of their faithfulness. And see, this is the key. What we have to ask ourselves is the focus of our lives, the great commission that God gave us to complete. That's reaching them. That's baptizing them. And that's discipling them. There are a lot of churches that can reach them. And they might even baptize them. But when it comes to discipling them, empowering them, to become forces for good in this community, teaching people how to overcome the wickedness of this world, to take the strongholds that they have in their life and know how to defeat them through the power of God. People are left adrift. It's like having a newborn baby and sitting on the front porch and going, good luck, hope you make it. <laughs> They're going to struggle. They might be saved, but man, are they going to grow in the Lord? Are they going to impact the world around them? Or is their life going to make a ripple that's going to change other lives for the positive? Because there's plenty that do it for the negative. So we look at this and we go, oh, is that what we're doing? Are we focused on accomplishing that? Or are we so in love with the world? Has it gotten so much of our heart that instead of being focused on fulfilling the Great Commission, we're focused on fulfilling our own personal happiness? Sadly, there are fewer in that first group, maybe than ever before. It's sad. But that doesn't have to be true of us, right? Because guess what? We get to choose. We get to choose which group we will be in. We will either be, when we leave this life, we'll either be people that leave the work of the Lord incomplete or like Moses, right? We will make sure to leave the work that we were doing in the capable hands of our, our Joshua, someone that we've invested in, and that they would make sure and make certain as they push forward to leave nothing undone. Because when you leave this earth, 
that's your only chance. We're given one shot. Your tombstone has a date when you're born and a date that you die. And the dash in the middle is what you do with it. It's all you have control over. And so many people, it's just slipping away every second. Lives slip into eternity. And we're worried about our Amazon orders and our new shoes and keeping our car clean. And the souls of men and women slip off into hell all around us. Man, we're given a commission. Let's do our best to fulfill it. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for today, for your opportunity that we've had to hear from you. And Lord, I just praise you for the word of God. I thank you for all the things you've taught us, shown us, the way you've helped us, Lord, to understand uh, through the pictures of the Old Testament how to apply these truths into our lives today. And I do pray for my brothers and sisters today, Lord, that, that our hearts would be set on applying and doing the very work and will of God in our lives. We're on this planet for a very short period of time, just a blip of time in comparison to eternity. Lord, would we make a, make a massive ripple with the life you've given us? Would we make eternal differences through the lives that we touch? Not only in how we live our lives, but Lord, also in those that we invest in as well. Lord, if we're not discipled, oh God, would we have a heart to be in discipleship, to be trained, to be developed, to be built. If you're in discipleship, man, praise God. Learn it for the glory of God. It's not about completing a mission or completing a course. It's about becoming an effective Christian for the glory of God. In the end, the Lord will judge our success based upon the souls that our lives touch. And I do pray, if there is any any here today, and you say, look, I, I, I hear all the talk about all of this, but I don't even know where I stand with God. I don't even know if I'm a Christian. I believe in God. I hope that's good enough, but can I tell you this? The devil believes in the, the devil believes in God. But we know the devil's not going to heaven. It's not just about believing in God. It's not just believing that he exists. It's not even having an emotional reaction to him. But it's trusting him as your savior. Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the sins of the world. And he offers salvation to any and all who will believe. All it takes is a willing heart to receive the amazing gift of God. And so if you're here today and you say, look, and I never consciously received that gift. I don't know that I have it. Listen, you can receive it today. Because from the cross, Christ loved the world. And right now, his loving arms are reaching out to you to receive that gift. He's offering it. It is no cost to you. It is a free gift. He paid the price. All you have to do is receive it by faith. If you're here today and you've never received Christ, if you're watching this online, you've never received Christ, I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray. There is no magic in the prayer. That's not the words. The Bible says, man looketh on the outward appearance, but God looketh on the heart. If you, with your heart, you want to receive Christ, I can promise you he will receive you right now. So their heads bowed and eyes closed. If you want to receive him, I'm going to lead you in prayer. It's not the words. Again, he's listening to your heart. Repeat after me in your heart and mind. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. And I am sorry for all the ways that I have failed you. I understand the accountability I have to you. I realize also that you love me in spite of myself. And I trust and receive that you went to the cross to pay the debt that I could not pay. I'm asking you right now in the best way that I know how to forgive me of my sins, to come into my heart, 
of you to save me. Lord, would you make me your child? By faith, I receive you. Thank you for saving me. Lord, I will see you in heaven one day. For it's in Jesus' name I pray and give thanks. Amen.